Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, a Radio Free Europe podcast on developments in Russia, its war against Ukraine, and its relations with the rest of the world. I'm Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL, and author of The Week in Russia newsletter. This week's podcast is about Russia's war against Ukraine, where things stand now, and what to watch for in the coming weeks and months. And my guest today on The Week Ahead in Russia is Ruth Dayermond, senior lecturer in the Department of War Studies at King's College London, and a specialist on Russian foreign and security policy, U.S.-Russia relations, and European security. Thanks very much for joining me, Ruth. Thank you for having me on again. All right. It's great to have you on the show again. Now, it's mid-January, and the new year is already in full swing. Uh, but this is the first episode of this podcast in 2024, and I'm going to treat it as a New Year's edition in a way. I'd like to take stock of the current situation in the war in Ukraine uh, and also take a look uh, at the future, not not so much uh, trying to guess what might happen, but uh, but in terms of what to, what to watch for um, as we as we enter this year, and I think a good way uh, into this is to go back uh, to a thread that you posted on X, formerly Twitter, uh, on the last day of 2023. Ruth, you wrote that um, in recent months there's been a lot of discussion in the West about a Russian victory, uh, which is certainly true, um, but that quote. Russia can't win, unquote. However, you wrote that at the same time, Ukraine could still lose and that the West could also lose. So that's my that's my brief summary of your thread. Um, now, I'd be grateful if you could just sort of expand on those points, essentially explain what you mean and what it, it could mean for the course of the war. Sure. So um, when I said that, that Russia can't win, what I was talking about was um, Russia's ability to to win as measured against um, the the objectives of the war that the Russian government and those around it set out two years ago, um, you know, in the run up to the war and and in the early phases of the war, and there were several explicit objectives and and some other kind of objectives that were clearly built in um, to to Russian war aims. Um, The first one, the one that actually got talked about the most in the run-up to the war, was was the idea that it would allow a kind of resetting of the strategic map of Europe, um, that it would push NATO back somehow to the position that it had occupied before um, enlargement in the late 90s and early noughties, and, and kind of give Russia a kind of strategic, um, if not dominance, then a greater degree of strategic equality in Europe than it had had since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, then other objectives um, clearly stated by the Russian government were to uh, denazify, as they put it, um, Ukraine, by which they obviously meant uh, removing the democratically elected government and installing a pro-Russian puppet government um, and stopping genocide in eastern Ukraine, um, which they claimed was was happening at the time. And then finally, you know, I think the other kind of key 
objective which was um, built in to, to all of this really was to reinforce Russia's status as a, as a great power, to reinforce Russia's position inside the, the space of what we used to call um, the, the former Soviet Union, the post-Soviet space. And none of that has happened. In fact, the reverse has happened in every case. So rather than pushing NATO back, you know, NATO has now expanded and looks set to expand further. And that expansion may at some point in the future um, include Ukraine. Um, Ukraine is now closer to NATO membership than it's ever been before. And of course, um, you know, keeping Ukraine militarily um, weak, um, not able to challenge Russia was, was another part of the attempt to denazify, as Putin put it, <clears throat> Ukraine. So all of that um, is not only unachievable, but, but the reverse has happened. Clearly, the idea that um, a you know a war in against Ukraine could result in the installation of a pro-Russian puppet government in Kiev that that clearly hasn't happened, and it it doesn't look um, remotely feasible now. And as for the the genocide claims, well, I mean, these were. were clearly untrue at the time mm -hmm. um, but if there has been anything like genocide in eastern ukraine it's been produced by the actions of the russian government who've uh, you know whose army have committed unspeakable atrocities against the civilians they said they were protecting um, and then on top of that of course you have the fact that russia has um with the exception i would say of georgia um lost considerable ground in its relationship with with most of the other states in the region uh, belarus being the other exception of course um so all of the original russian aims are now unachievable so russia cannot win on those terms but what russia can do um what the russian government can do is is win on other terms right um and this this is what you can see happening over the last year really i think a, a reframing of the objectives of the war um and it is clear it's been clear from um both russian government statements and from the conduct of the war that the the objective now has been to wear down the ukrainian armed forces that you wear down ukrainian resistance um through a war of attrition um, but in order to do that, um, undermining Western support for um, for Ukraine, since Ukrainian um, defence is so dependent on Western support. So if it is possible um, that the Russian government can manage to minimise or reduce Western financial and military support for Ukraine, um, then clearly Ukraine can can lose, and it's entirely possible under those circumstances that Ukraine would get to a point where they would simply not be able to continue to defend their territory in the manner that they have been doing, and they would be pushed to some kind of, in fact, temporary peace agreement that would give Russia the kinds of um, things that it seems now to want. Um, and of course, that I think in turn would mean a, a significant defeat for um, NATO and for the, for the EU, for the West collectively, because it would um, you know, demonstrate 
um, the kind of Western weakness that the Russian government has been talking about for at, at least a decade, 10 or 15 years, in fact. Um, and because it would make uh, NATO states much more vulnerable to various kinds of threat from Russia than they had previously been. It would make, for example, the Black Sea much more vulnerable, you know, as a space in which uh, NATO states and European Union states um, can operate economically and, and in terms of security. So I think there are all sorts of ways where we could see Ukraine losing, the West losing, um, but Russia still also losing. Um, so, so it's a complicated picture, I think. So is that, uh, th thanks very much, um, particularly um, description. I think people forget uh, about some of the, some of the Russian aims uh, um, that it laid out before, before the full-scale invasion of February uh, 2022. Uh, you know, its demands uh, essentially that would roll back the results of the, uh, essentially of the, of the Cold War, the Soviet collapse, um, uh, you know, leaving, Russia in control of more territory uh, to to the west, uh, and, and also um, you know NATO kind of defanged, or maybe that's not the right word, but uh, um, giving giving Russia much more influence and and, and weakening NATO, um, kind of kind of a reworking of of the of the results of the Cold War, um, and and as you say, you know that that um, you know the opposite seems to happen. Um, I'm just wondering uh, about uh, not to not to sound alarmist, but you describe a situation in which you know, if if Western aid, I guess, uh, and Western support fades uh, substantially, that kind of all sides could lose, but Russia, uh, but Ukraine would be forced into some kind of a compromise or you know a, a temporary temporary agreement. And I mean, do you think that that's something that Russia really is has now as its main aim? And if so, would that include kind of the current, you know, uh, is Russia controlling the the territory that it currently controls, or or pushing for for more, for for example, for control of of all of the five regions that it claims uh, are part of Russia? I, it's hard to tell. Um, I think that the Russian government is likely to push for the maximum that it, it thinks it could achieve. And that uh, I think that would depend on how weak it perceived the Ukrainian position to be and how weak it perceived Western support to be. Um, I definitely think that some kind of agreement like that whatever the specifics of it are, that an agreement like that is something that the Russian government um, will be seeking in due course because it, it's a kind of formula that has worked very well um, for Russia <clears throat> in this region in the past. So um, since the early 1990s, the Russian government has used so-called frozen conflicts as, as one of the key instruments of its um, coercive power over um, its neighbours, its post-Soviet neighbours. Um, 
you know, sign an agreement, freeze the fighting, move or retain Russian troops into contested territory. And that then gives Russia a, a very large measure of control, not only over the, the territory um, that it occupies, but also um, the country um, affected, so the, the capital affected. Mm -hmm. And that, um, you know, that's been a successful tool of kind of Russian strategy in um, Moldova, in Georgia, and, you know, since 2014, also, of course, in, in Ukraine. Um, and, of course, these kinds of agreements, one of the things that they do, and and this was very evident in, um, in Ukraine since 2014, one of the things that they do is they allow Russia to militarily reinforce um, their position in contested territory. So any kind of peace agreement um, would allow Russia simply to consolidate its position, potentially with a view in the future to then um, launching another uh, war, taking more territory. Um, so, so I think, you know, f for all those reasons, that kind of agreement would be something that the Russian government would seek. Uh, whether it wants that right now is, is not clear, but, but it's certainly based on uh, what the Russian government has done in other countries and Ukraine in the past. It's something that we would have to expect them to, to want in the future. Um, and of course, that is only ever going to be a kind of temporary uh, pause in the fighting. It's very hard to imagine a scenario in which any kind of peace agreement signed um, when the situation is anything like the situation it is now, um, it's very hard to imagine that holding because neither side would have a long-term incentive um, to respect that agreement. Um, and so you know, the, the kind of calls that you hear in some quarters in the West for, um, for negotiations, I think fundamentally misunderstand what that would mean and, and don't understand that that could only ever be a, a temporary pause in fighting and a temporary pause in fighting that would um, really do nothing more than reinforce Russia's position. Okay, thanks very much. Um, yeah, and, and of course, the Ukrainian government, um, you know, makes, make, argues quite often that, you know, this is uh, a ceasefire is is something that would you know that would benefit Russia and, and you know th this can't happen um, um, I, I think that's a it's a good place to kind of segue to to my second question um, uh, which which also stems from from your thread uh, on on New Year's Eve uh, and has to do with with what Ukraine and the West can do and so you wrote that uh, quote, uh, the capacity to determine the outcome of the war, a pivotal moment for European security and global stability, rests with the West, both the U.S. and Europe, unquote. And you also wrote that the West needs to decide what winning in Ukraine looks like. So you've discussed, you, you've talked about, you know, sort of what what a, a I guess a loss for all three sides, but but a situation that would be a loss for Ukraine and the West um, could look like uh, if if you if Russia manages to you know to secure even a, 
a, a temporary uh, deal with with uh, with control over over a s- substantial portions of the country. But um, maybe you could walk us uh, through your thinking on this. Kind of maybe give an example of an outcome that would be a win for Ukraine, um, and explain how the West uh, could do its best to help make that happen. And then. Uh, sorry, but a related or additional question, since I'm treating this as a New Year's podcast, is a win for Ukraine possible in 2024? So, um, yeah, there's a there's a lot to discuss there. Yes. Um, I mean, in terms of the, the, the kind of the capacity of the West to, to determine the outcome of the war, I mean, that's my view because of the absolutely fundamental importance of Western material support for Ukraine. Um, It's acknowledged by everyone, by analysts, uh, by policymakers, by the military, um, on all sides, that Western uh, support, military support for Ukraine is is the critical factor preventing Russia um, capturing more territory, invading further um, uh, further Ukrainian territory. And you know, the, the extent to which Ukraine can, um, can defend itself um, and, and the ways in which it can defend itself, the ways in which it can push back against Ukrainian, uh, against Russian invasion, really is and has been since the start of the war kind of shaped by um, the kind of military support that the West is willing to give and the quantity of military support that the West is willing and able to give. And so, you know, over the last year and a half in particular, you've had lots of discussion about, um, you know, kind of long range weapons being supplied to Ukraine and whether they should be and what the implications would be. And it's been clear that there has been nervousness in some Western capitals, perhaps most notably um, in Washington DC, um, about providing Ukraine with weapons that would allow Ukraine to strike military targets inside Russia. So um, places in Russia from which the Russian army, Russian armed forces are launching attacks on Ukraine, attacks on civilian targets in Ukraine very often. Um, and the, the capacity of Ukraine to respond to those attacks really depends on the willingness of the United States in particular, but also other NATO countries to provide the kinds of weapons that would allow them um, to, to stop those attacks, to attack those targets. But as I say, there has been this reluctance to do that. Um, there has been an anxiety that providing those kinds of weapons, weapons that would attack, you know, that would allow Ukraine to attack targets in Russia, mm-hmm. um, would be seen as an escalation. That this could ultimately um, potentially draw NATO into the war itself. Um, that it might lead to. Um, escalation to nuclear use by Russia, all the kinds of threatening noises that Russia has made around these um, these issues, I think have dampened the willingness of the United States and other governments to provide the kinds of weapons that would allow Ukraine actually to, to adequately resist um, these kinds of attacks. 
if if there was a willingness in the West to provide um, these kinds of weapons, the kind of support that the Ukrainian government says it needs, then I think that that would have a significant effect on the outcome of the war, um, not just in material terms, but also politically, because it would send strong message to the Russian government that actually Western countries are not wavering in their support for Ukraine. Um, on the contrary, they they are actually kind of upping their support for Ukraine because it's clear that that this Ukrainian um, dependence on Western military support um, is one of the key vulnerabilities that the Russian government is targeting, and it's targeting it by um, attempting to undermine Western support, um, both, you know, by at a popular level, by kind of pushing out narratives using kind of different, <clears throat> excuse me, disinformation um, and misinformation techniques to, to try to undermine um, domestic support for, um, for aid to Ukraine in, in the United States and European countries. Um, but also by, I think, you know, kind of engaging with political groups uh, inside these countries. Um, and, you know, I think the Russian government is also counting on key political figures in some of these countries, including the United States, um, in weakening support for Ukraine. So you can see everyone agrees that, you know, I think that um, Western aid, military aid is, is the decisive factor in allowing Ukraine to defend itself. Um, an increase in that aid could make a significant difference, I think. Um, and so you can therefore see why it is that the, the Russian government is so concerned to to undermine um, ongoing Western support. So that was the first part of the <laughs> question. <laughs> Apologies for taking so long. Um, so, so what would winning look like? I mean, as I said in, in this thread that I wrote on, on New Year's Eve, is one of the big questions that's been asked in lots of different environments, lots of different um, kind of places in the West uh, for the last, certainly the last year and a half, I would say. Um, there is a, a recognition on the part of lots of analysts, but also people in different governments um, in inside NATO and the European Union, a recognition that there isn't a clear agreement on in the West on what winning in Ukraine looks like. Um, does it mean, for example, Russia being pushed back to um, the borders before 24th of February 2022, the start of this phase of the war? Um, or does it mean actually Ukraine takes control of all of its legal territory so ukraine gains control of all the territory inside its 1991 borders um or does it mean something in between so you know ukraine recaptures eastern ukraine but but doesn't have control of crimea crimea continues to be occupied and those kind of three scenarios are the scenarios that you, you hear most frequently i think um and there isn't a consensus uh, amongst Western partners on, on which of those three scenarios or indeed something else would constitute a win in Ukraine. And I think, you know, it's it's pretty fundamental to um, any 
war that um, you are not going to be successful unless you know what your objectives are. And you can't support a partner waging a war, defending itself um, adequately until you understand what you think victory is. So there needs to be a much uh, com franker conversation, I think, um, in the West, um, within Western countries and between Western countries, about what they understand winning to be. And I think one of the reasons why it hasn't happened is because there are, I suspect, fairly major differences um, between governments on this question. And so far, we've seen NATO states, European Union states, um, attempting, with the exception of Hungary, of course, uh, attempting to, to hold a kind of united position on Ukraine, more or less. Um, although clearly recent election in Slovakia hasn't helped that, for example, but, but broadly speaking, there's been a kind of consensus position. Once you start talking about whether or not um, Western states should be supporting Ukraine, the uh, occupying Crimea, then you open up quite notable splits, I think. Um, and, and so people have been trying to avoid that. But it, it's a conversation that has to happen um, because, as I say, you know, that there, there is not going to be any kind of long term resolution to this conflict until um, Western states know what the limits of their support are for Ukraine um, and know what they want to see Ukraine achieve. And I think for that reason, actually, amongst others, uh, seeing Ukraine actually win uh, decisively this year, that looks difficult at this point, in all honesty, um, not least because there is this kind of uncertainty in, in Western support about how much support they want to give Ukraine, what what kind of winning looks like. Um, but also just because of the nature of the war now, um, that because it is a war of attrition, um, these these are not wars that are won quickly. Um, so a, a decisive Ukrainian victory um, by the end of this year, I think, looks difficult. Um, the key thing, I think, will be to provide um, continued, hopefully increased support for Ukraine um, so that they can continue to push back against Russian invasion um, and, you know, aim to to achieve control of, in my view, all their territory, um, perhaps in the longer term. Okay, thanks. Um, and I guess I'll just just uh, one one follow up question uh, uh, on these issues. Um, you you kind of mentioned the the importance of of, of the West, you know. Figuring out what it sees as as you as a win for Ukraine, um, um, but I guess I, I just uh, whether or not that happens, and and there are you know politicians in the U.S. and and are are, are certainly calling for um, at least to some degree are calling for the government to make that clearer. Um, but uh, I just wonder where you you know we're two week it's two weeks into the year now um, the the aid uh, U.S. aid is still you know still kind of deeply in doubt um, Congress you know, in, in Congress um, you know after after the the holiday break um, 
so I guess uh, you know, just wondering, you know, how you how you see things sort of playing out. I'm not asking you to predict, but like at this point, um, uh, does it seem like um, things will continue in terms of on the battlefield, um, more or less as they are, or is or you know? If there's no if there's no new U.S. aid, for example, are, are things uh, is there a risk that uh, the situation could change uh, pretty substantially uh, in the coming months? Yeah, I think I think that has to be the the concern, right? I mean, it's it's hard to see how how it wouldn't be. I mean, the scale of uh, American support for Ukraine has been so so great um, that. A, a kind of significant reduction of that um, is obviously going to, to have a major effect. And I think to, to kind of just expand out a tiny bit, if I may, I mean, it, I think one of the big problems um, in the Western debates around Ukraine and support for Ukraine, particularly in the United States, but, but also I think in Western Europe as well, there's a a sense amongst some sections of um, the, the kind of political class that this isn't really a, a major problem, right? I mean, it's I mean, obviously it's a large war and and it's very regrettable, and um, they would like it to stop as soon as possible. But you know, at some fundamental level, what's happening in Ukraine isn't a, a kind of really significant security issue um, for the United States. Um, and that, I think, is a fundamental misjudgment. Um, I think there, there needs to be a clearer communication on the part of um, the current American president and um, you know, leaders in other European countries. There needs to be a much clearer communication to um, to, to populations, to citizens, but also to other members of the political elite um, about why the war in Ukraine really matters, why it matters for American security, why it matters for Western European security. Um, and that, you know, that hasn't happened as well as it should have done, I think. Um, and that's one thing that does need to change. And of course, it, it needs to change pretty quickly in the United States because we're at a crunch point and and then another big crunch point is going to come in November of course with the US presidential election all right well thanks very much that um, I mean uh, the stressing uh, the the importance of of that and you know it does seem like a, um, a, a key a key thing that you know that you say, needs to change um and as we go into this year um we'll see how that plays out um uh so i, I really i'm going to wrap it up here um but i really appreciate your your comments your analysis thanks very much for joining me ruth thank you very much all right once again i've been speaking to ruth Dayermond, a senior lecturer in the department of war studies at king's college london and a specialist on russian foreign and security policy U.S.-Russia relations, and European security. And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. This has been The Week Ahead in Russia. Our theme music is Nyestrelai, or Don't Shoot, 
a song from the early 1980s by Yuri Shevchuk and DDT. Please be sure to check out my newsletter, The Week in Russia, which covers the latest developments in Russian politics and society, as well as Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Subscribe by visiting www.rferl.org.